Sometimes God gives us glimpses into the enormity of the work at hand, not to increase our capacity to do a larger work or more work, but so that the work we can do becomes more vital and less optional. We are compelled to do the work we can do because we cannot do all we want. I wrote that on the way home from a 10-day trip to India with Compassion International a few years ago, actually. It was, to be entirely honest, the life-altering trip for several reasons, including a very humbling breakdown that I had on day nine of the trip. Guided by our hosts in India, a small group of us got to visit several church communities where people were being fed and educated, provided medical care, specifically kids, Kids who, without the open door of the Compassion Program, would most likely live without those necessities. Of course, I'd seen these things before. I'd been on trips before. I'd seen extreme poverty in Central America, South America, Kenya, Uganda. And yeah, always it was heartbreaking, but... And I know this sounds distant and privileged and desensitized. I was never altogether that overwhelmed. I pretty much always felt like I had a grasp on things, philosophically, anthropologically, politically, and even theologically. But that ninth day in India, I fell to pieces. We gathered toward the end of the evening on that ninth day with compassion staff and partners from all over the world. There were several groups visiting Kolkata at the same time. And I remember starting to feel something like dizzy, listening to German staff talk about the former prostitute they spent time with earlier that afternoon who walked into the middle of the street in one of Kolkata's red light districts to be surrounded and mobbed by dozens of current prostitutes who consider her a mother figure and a caregiver. She visits them daily. In the van on the way to that gathering, I remarked to my friend Bob that on the drive, that drive, like all of our other drives, every mile was covered by people and that it was actually wearing on me that for over a week, there were crowds of human lives extending as far as I could see and beyond. There was no break, no open space, just sea after sea of humanity. So many people. Earlier that day, we'd visited a convent where sick and destitute people received care from Catholic sisters, sisters who walked the block around their building, sometimes daily, to see if anyone had left children to be picked up or, sometimes, trampled. Before that, across town, late in the morning, we were invited to witness a religious ceremony at the Temple to the God Kali. Around the temple were hundreds of women and children and a few men holding animals in their arms or on leashes. They were waiting in line to sacrifice those animals to Kali, And there were animal screams inside the walls of the temple. And then the iron smell of blood was thick the deeper we got into the temple. These sacrifices, we were told, were meant to appease Kali so that Kali would not wreak havoc on people's lives with disease and other calamities. Some of those sacrifices, we were also told, were of animals that the family would much more greatly benefit from if kept alive for milk, or meat, or farmland grazing. Religion, I thought to myself, can be so utterly cruel and detestable. And that got me thinking about the thousands or even millions of tiny gods, including the diminished and manipulated forms of Jesus, that folks like myself 
made sacrifices too regularly, sacrifices of time and money and friendship and mental health, of dreams and on and on. And that's what got the unraveling going in me. It's all so much, there is so much wrong. So that by the time I stepped off our shuttle at the end of that ninth night, and walked past the armed guard, who held the line between the slum next door to our hotel and the crisp, clean hotel itself, I was dizzy and nauseous. And I couldn't tell as clearly where the line was between what was real and what was imaginary, between what I knew of the world and what I was just projecting onto it, or between what I believed about goodness itself and what I simply hoped was true so that I could feel better about the way I lived. There's a fair bit about the rest of that night that I don't remember. I know that there were tears and some pacing and some attempts at coherent prayer. Eventually, I found myself in the bathroom mirror working away to remove my beard. I'd flash back to a moment several months earlier when at a friend's party, his rabbi pulled me aside to tell me I needed to cut off my facial hair, that a beard was a sign of wisdom and that I was far too young or perhaps acting too young to have earned that beard. My buddy was embarrassed for me and he apologized, but something about that moment stuck with me, apparently, because here I was, scraping away at my face and feeling very much like I didn't deserve to wear a beard. I'd been confronted by realities in my world that week that I could make no sense of, things that shook me pretty bad. I needed a way to show my contrition, a way to make clear that I knew that I'd been wrong about how smart I was, or understanding, or how powerful I was. But that thought, as right as it might be, felt like it missed. Because if the cumulative effect of this moment, of these days, was only that I felt bad, that didn't seem right. So as I washed off my now clean face, I felt my mind settle a bit, and in what little piece of clarity I had, or was gaining, I turned my attention back toward the reasons that I was in this country to begin with. See, Compassion International had invited me to India because I was one of their speakers. I was and am an advocate for children growing up in extreme poverty. And no, right then and there, that job, the job that I was doing on the scale I was able to do it on, was flat out not enough. It wasn't big enough. And if my personal goal was to eradicate poverty entirely that week, or maybe even in my lifetime, then no, nothing I do is enough. Not on that level. But maybe the point of this didn't have to be that I felt bad about how little I have to offer. Maybe what I could do instead of simply give in to my circumstances and say it is what it is and I just am what I just am, maybe I could learn to soberly take my life more seriously especially in light of how serious things are in the world I'm choosing to love because things are very serious and that should be overwhelming. But if I'm to think of myself as more than a tool in the divine tool belt whose value is determined by usefulness and effectiveness, then just experiencing guilt in that moment was too small a thing. To be humbled? Yes. To be demoralized? No. See, this is the thing I find in my friends, my sisters, my brothers who are neck deep in works in areas like hunger or extreme poverty or even human trafficking and slavery. Their wins and victories are few and sometimes small and infrequent. 
While the depth of the darkness is pervasive and seemingly relentless, an interest in their work in the worlds beyond the walls of their offices waxes and wanes regularly. That's overwhelming, and it should be. But what if what that means is that I can offer my time and my talents and efforts and my energies not because I'm effective and powerful, but because the people I'm offering myself to and the people I'm doing that work with are worth it. Maybe that makes it a work of love rather than effectiveness. And maybe that's the key long-term. Maybe that's why awareness of the 40 million people living in slavery right now waxes and wanes and oscillates as wildly as it does. Our effectiveness can be called into question, sidelining our efforts and sometimes crushing them altogether. But if we are committed to loving people, the effectiveness of our plans has a much broader context. And when things seem dark and heavy, ineffective, then the love we are committed to says, just do what you can with all your heart. You are not here to win, you are here to love.